You're listening to the Homelessness Services Association podcast. This is an audio-only version of one of our webinars addressing the challenges of frontline and shelter work during the coronavirus crisis. If you'd like to view the video or look at the slides, please go to hsa-bc.ca. Well, good morning and welcome to HSABC's webinar panel. It's kind of fluid today. Um, we're talking about emergency housing and BC's public safety order. I'm your host for today. My name is Sarah Kift and um, just a little bit about me. I've worked in the frontline nonprofit sector for over 15 years, including in Vancouver's downtown east side at Carnegie Community Centre. And I currently develop and host webinars for HSABC as well as instruct mental health for state and, and do podcasts and other things like that. So when you're using the question section, that's me who you'll be chatting to. And I'll do my best to share your questions and comments as they come up. Um, this webinar format is going to be a little bit different today. We have uh, Aileen Goswick from L.A. on the line. She's going to start us off by talking about her experience down there. Uh, then Corey Ranger, our public health nurse and um, fellow on the ground in Victoria, harm reduction specialist, is going to be talking a little bit about the policy and the framework. And then we have Duncan Higgin from the Portland Hotel Society, and he's been involved in the process of decampment and finding housing for people, as well as other things. So he's going to be part of our discussion. So there'll be a large section of the webinar that is discussion and questions, and we, we look forward to taking your questions as well. With all of that preamble aside, I'm going to introduce you to our panelists today. Um, so we have Corey Ranger. Some of you might know him already from previous webinars. And he is... Um, he has worked on the harm reduction team in downtown Calgary, implemented and coordinated HIV programming in rural Alberta, as well as the Take Home Naloxone Project and supervised consumption services in Medicine Hat. Um, he's highly driven and passionate about ethical and evidence-based approaches to mental health problems. And more recently, Corey has moved back to Vancouver Island and has taken on the role of project manager for the Provincial Peer Training Curriculum Program project <laughs> with the government of British Columbia. But he also in the last two months has been on the ground in the camps in Victoria, working in advocacy, implementing systems, working on safe supply, um, dealing with overdoses, and just doing whatever he can to help out. Um, and so we're really grateful to have him here with us today. Um, we also have Aileen. Aileen Gosvick has worked in homeless prevention for families, youth, housing, research and policy development with Housing First for chronically homeless adults. And now she works as the senior director for L.A. Family Housing, doing engagement for families and individuals. She was recently involved and is still involved today. She's uh, calling in from a hallway in a hotel um, in rehoming people from one of L.A.'s long-standing encampments due to the COVID-19 crisis. And Aileen specializes in diversion practice for homelessness prevention. And she, uh, she knows what it's like here in BC. She used to live here and work in BC as well in the homelessness sector. So we're grateful that she's able to call in from LA and she's going to share a bit of her experience at the beginning. We also have Duncan Higgin on the line and, um, 
He's there in the face mask. <laughs> and he is a senior manager of housing for the Portland Hotel Society Community Services Society. And he's worked in the field of supportive housing and sheltering uh, with PHS since 2009. Uh, more recently, he was the project lead on the four temporary modular housing projects opened and operated by the PHS over the last 16 months. Um, and previous to his work in BC, Duncan studied and researched the intersection of cyclical poverty and increased rates of violence at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow, Scotland. Uh, Tanya may or may not be joining us today. Um, that's her picture there. She's the director of housing at PHS. So we will wait to hear from her. All right. Well, everybody, you can... Uh, Unmute your mics and uh, we'll get this rolling. It's great to have everybody on the line today. So we're going to start um, with Corey. Um, just saying a couple of words here. Um, if you want to do a bit of an acknowledgement and a hello, Corey, then we'll flip over to Aylin. Definitely helps when I unmute myself. Um, so <laughs> just want to thank everybody for being here as a uh, as well as the panelists. Um, when COVID-19 started to emerge, I um, paid really close attention and, and started doing the, the research early. Um, I kind of continued to snowball in my involvement in the encampments because I was getting more involved um, through other activities. And the more involved I became, the more concerned I became with the lack of preparedness and some of the planned strategies. I did take a leave of absence from my full-time position to kind of try and fill those gaps for the last two months. And I just wanted to start off by saying my, my goal today is to introduce to everyone a national protocol for homeless encampments in Canada prepared by the UN um, Rapporteur um, and compare it to our current approach here in Victoria so that we can help empower some of our frontliners, the managers, directors, and supervisors to advocate for a more evidence-based and ethical approach to our homeless encampments. And Before actually, we get started. Corey, sorry, yep. I totally forgot. We just want to run a quick poll here, um, and then we will we'll do everything else. We just want to know what your role is in your organization. Um, are you a manager, supervisor, a frontline worker, a support staff? Maybe you're part of the admin team. And if you want to type in, if you choose other, um, please type in and let me know what that means for you. Obviously, uh, working in the front lines means that sometimes you do multiple roles and uh, or all at the same time. But do take the time to fill that out because it really helps uh, our panelists today shape their conversation based on our audience. So I'll just wait a couple more seconds for people to get their votes in. Uh, sorry for interrupting you there, Corey. I'm completely thrown off. I'll, I'll never be the same again. Sorry, Sarah. <laughs> All right. So that's good. We've got a good breakdown here. We've got 47% frontline workers, 18% uh, managers and supervisors. It's great to have you on the line today. We've got some support staff. Awesome to see you and some admin uh, and board people as well. And there's 12% that are others. So uh, that remains a mystery right now, but uh, do type in and let me know. All right, Corey, now you can take it away. All right. So um, be before we toss it back to Aileen, um, I'd like to recognize that colonization and the institutional oppressors that continue to permeate in our society have dramatically impacted Indigenous people who call this land home. 
in this presentation, we will talk about the value of housing. Um, as maybe I shouldn't call it a presentation in this panel uh, webinar. Uh, we'll talk about the value of housing, especially in a time of, of a pandemic like this. But we will also remind people that housing uh, cannot be framed as a matter of public safety or delivered through the lens of law enforcement. It's about how we get there, too. For First Nations, Métis, Indigenous people, the language and strategies used in decampments and subsequent temporary hotel shelters raise alarms of the general traumas and generational traumas inflicted through colonization. A land acknowledgement does not rectify this by any stretch of the imagination, but it is one small step to committing to a relationship of humility and collaboration. So it's with that spirit today that I would like to acknowledge with respect the Lekwungen people on whose traditional territory I stand on today, and the Songhees, Esquimalt, and Wasanish peoples whose historical relationship with the land continue today. And with that completed, I would like to pass um, the mic over to Aylin. Thank you, Corey. Um, all right, I'm going to just try and dive in. Um, there's a lot to share and a lot going on. And I'm just, I'm really appreciative of um, being hosted on this. Uh, and thank you for the intro, Sarah. I think after all the webinars we've done together and now after this, I might have to change my expertise and specialty. Yes. <laughs> um, so I, uh, as much as I love prevention and diversion, that's just not where we're at as a system right now. Um, so I'm going to talk about this specific encampment as well as um, the efforts of getting people into these hotels. So I work for an organization um, in Los Angeles, uh, and there are 60,000 people on the streets of L.A. County. We're split into areas, so I oversee outreach in one area, one of eight. Um, and we have now four hotels that we've stood up, opened up, and got people into. And um, one that was very, very close to my work was this encampment that I've always referred to as Paxton and Bradley. So Paxton and Bradley is, was a, an encampment for about three to four years um, where there was a land dispute between the state and the city over who owned what piece of property. So you see in that first picture in the top corner, I'm standing there petting a dog. The sidewalk was city property and where all the tents were was state property. So for years, this encampment was never torn down. Um, they couldn't really do a lot of cleanups or anything like that, which actually created some benefits in being able to engage people and not have them scattered so often. Um, and I just want to preface that when I when we did this project um, of these hotels, that was not the first engagement with this encampment. I think that's really important. Um, a lot of people have wanted to talk to us since um, this has happened about like, how did we engage them? How did we get them all to go to this hotel? How did we kind of do this? And it was not a response to COVID-19. The hotel was a resource that came available because of COVID-19. The engagement and relationship were already there. And that's what's really important. So I'm going to try and stress that as much as I can, um, that when you're doing this sort of work um, to, to help people in large encampments to get off the streets really fast, relationship is going to be your most important currency um, and trust. We have to have trust to be able to do this for many reasons. Um, so we have now uh, opened four hotels. We've got about 60 rooms left in the hotel I'm currently in. Um, we've gotten hundred and we got 173 rooms filled at this current one and 55 of them came from this encampment. So 
over the last 10 months of working on the project with this encampment, we were really trying to frame it as a community engagement effort and a community development effort. So rather than our usual system of get to know people one by one, uh, get their assessments in, whatever that looks like, whatever kind of assessment you guys are using, um, we're doing that same thing, getting people matched to services and resources and getting them housed one at a time. And so the the focus shifted to this is a, a community that's working together and finding ways to live together um, and sharing space. And they've got they've got a structure in place. They've got their own system of how they do that. It was also really important to to note that there's a lot of familial ties in this encampment. And whether they were um, familial ties from long before or they became family after, there was a lot of um, interconnectedness going on there. And so we were really trying to work with them to leverage and build up that rather than just get people into whatever resource could open up. And so we would host town halls where we would have everyone come and talk together. At best, we could get three or four people to come at a time and talk about how do they want to get housing? How do they want to do this? How do they want to get out from under the bridge? Um, so then COVID-19 happened. So we're in the middle of a project really focusing on a different way to engage encampments, a different way to look at groups of people and their capacity. And COVID-19 started um, to really shut things down. Uh, and Los Angeles uh, did go into lockdown quite a bit earlier than a lot of other parts of the United States. I think very similar timing to um, a lot of Canada. I was down here just freaking out because I was watching things happen and everyone here seemed to not care until it was happening. Um, and and so that was a really interesting kind of dynamic um, and being Canadian here in the States just gives you a different perspective on some things. I think we have a, a different lens of public health in Canada than they do here and just a different way of organizing systems. Um, systems can be very chaotic here and uh, there's not a lot of centralization. So we started getting these resources opening up um, in what they're calling Project Room Key, and it's these hotels that the state is then providing dollars, it's reimbursed by FEMA, uh, and they started leasing hotels uh, with the goal in LA County of opening up 15,000 hotel rooms. We are up to 1,600 hotel rooms open, um, with or 2,000 hotel rooms open, 1,600 full and almost 400 of those are coming from our agency. So we've done a lot of work to, to stand these up. Um, and I can talk both about the, the experience of getting people into them, as well as what kind of happens once people are in. What does that process look like? What are some of the things that we've seen as people move into these hotels? Um, and we've done a couple of different things. So the Paxton and Bradley encampment, we moved as a group. There's also a very um, large area in the San Fernando Valley called the Sepulveda Basin. It's a very um, heavily park wooded area. I think very similar actually to a lot of what Vancouver looks like um, from my experience working there. Specifically, I worked in Burnaby and this reminds me a lot of that, but very dense. This park probably had about 300 people living in, in it this summer in four large encampments. Um, and then in the summer, they started doing some very aggressive cleanups and displaced a lot of people. And so now there's probably seven or eight medium-sized encampments surrounding the park um, that people have now joined. And so it almost got bigger than it was when everyone was in the park, something that I have no problem telling our elected officials that they made my job harder now when they're asking me for favors to get all their people off the streets. Um, not, not in any way spiteful at all. Uh, so... 
we've got these two different kinds of spaces that we're trying to focus on and then just a ton of other people. So in our service area alone, there's 8,000 people on the streets and we've only opened 400 rooms. Prior to that, we only had about 250 shelter beds. So shelters has not been an option for us ever. Um, it's a very, very small portion of what we're doing to address homelessness here, which led to a lot of um, barriers in trying to get people to these resources. And one of the things that our, our system is trying to do right now, which I think is not going to work as well as we want it to, is start creating lists. We already had list after list after list, and now they want another list of people who want to go into the hotels, and then they're going to pick them one by one. And the reason that um, I got kind of asked to do this is, is because of this Paxton and Bradley encampment, because most people, even law enforcement were around that day. No one thought it would happen. I even didn't think it would look the way that it did. Um, when we had, I had maybe 33 referrals in for that group. I had to fight for two weeks with our funders of these hotels to let us do that as a community. They really, really wanted to prioritize by name with a list with new referrals in our system fine. Like you can go through those administrative things, but just they didn't seem to grasp that people living in these large encampments are pretty well-formed communities quite often. Um, and people find ways to survive and they find ways to work together. And they weren't going to just trust any person walking up and saying, hey, there's a hotel. Do you want to go? Um, I think very similar to what was said around Indigenous communities having a lot of trauma around um, these spaces and what that can look like. Similarly, here in L.A., they wanted people to get on a bus that was um, staffed by LAPD in full uniform um, to go to all these shelter sites opening up and everything. And people just couldn't grasp that that wasn't going to work. Um, from my perspective, the biggest success from this was that the community got to stay together. Uh, and so what we did is we, we had a list of people already in that encampment. We had them all engaged. Um, and that's where whatever you're doing with encampments in other areas, like you have to rely on the people who have already been engaging there. They have to be involved in one way or another, whether it's volunteers who do a lot of work there or outreach staff or whoever it is. It's got to be people who've got some relationship there. If you're walking in for the first time to offer a hotel to someone who doesn't know you, it's, it's going to be hit or miss. Some people might take it, but if they've never been offered this before, the likelihood of them being suspicious of it is high. Um, so when we finally fought through all the red tape, got some permission to do a little bit more um, kind of free intake process, less of a by name list with an appointment. They literally wanted to pull in a list of names and then give everyone an appointment time. And they assumed that people would just show up on time, which I thought was a little funny. Um, we showed up with a bus at Paxton and Bradley on a Monday. Um, this is about two weeks ago. Um, I, I anticipated maybe 20 people would come day one, maybe 10 people day two. I've been trying to figure out how many people live in this encampment for the last year. Uh, and I was thinking it was close to like 45 with another 10 to 15 living around the area, both in cars and just kind of nearby. Um, on day one, 43 people came with us who were living in the encampment. On day two, another uh, nine people came with us. And by the end of the week, we had, um, not just with our hotels, but also some pop-up shelters, we had gotten six or seven extra people over to different sites. Um, but for the most part, we had 55 residents from that encampment come to one hotel together. It's a 260-room hotel um, and by that Friday, they were doing a cleanup. I had to go um, 
try and get people to tell me like, what do you still need from under the bridge? We had to set up transportation for the whole week. So that that was a huge thing. When we first started doing this with encampments, we would go, we'd have the resource and then people would say like, okay, but I need to get my stuff. And if they only had the one opportunity to take it, they either freaked out and wouldn't come with because they couldn't just couldn't decide what they needed. Or they'd be like, well, I need to come back and I need to be able to get back and forth to my stuff. And then they didn't have transportation. So they'd come to the hotel, go back to the encampment, not be able to get back. And it was just a lot of kind of people not staying. So when we opened this third hotel and we had Paxton and Bradley moving in on day one, I specifically arranged to have various kinds of transportation going back and forth basically all week so that people felt like they had the opportunity. And it wasn't even so much that people really needed to go back and get stuff. It was just on day one, I could tell them like, don't worry, like grab your most important things that you don't want stolen out of here because that's going to happen as soon as they leave their stuff. But you can come back. You can come back and get your stuff. We'll have at least the week. I knew by the end of the week that the city was going to do a cleanup. And it's a really fine line of being very honest with our clients and helping them to understand that again, that's where you have to have relationship. Um, but also not freaking them out. Like if I were to go on Monday and be like, get all your stuff, they're going to have to tear this stuff down as soon as we're gone. No one would have come or the few people who would have, would have been really freaked out about it. Um, the other thing I think around this encampment that I was trying to make our funders understand as to why we were going with everyone was that, You've got some really vulnerable people in these encampments who are older. They've been outside a long time. And then there was absolutely a couple of like 30-year-olds who were related. They're around. They're not necessarily as medically vulnerable to COVID-19. But when you've got a community, it tends to become an all-or-nothing thing. Maybe not every single person, but people aren't going to leave their loved ones and their friends and the people they're protecting in an encampment when they get to go to a hotel. And if they're if for any reason, like the hotel just feels a little uncomfortable, they're going to bolt and they're going to go back to that encampment and they're going to go back to the people who have been caring for them and they've been caring for. Um, so it was, to me, it was a really important thing that we focused on kind of getting everyone to a resource so that especially the most vulnerable could feel at peace with not being there to look out for people. Um, and it worked really, really well. You can see kind of the, the screenshot of that video of what it looked like afterwards um, you know, it was like one day that it was there and the next day it was gone. It was, it was overwhelming to watch it all come down. I've got a lot of people's stuff in the city is storing and I've got details on how they can all get it, but I'm waiting for them to ask. Cause if they don't ask, I mean, a lot of that stuff, they definitely can be, it can be replaced. Stuff can be replaced. But when you, if you don't give people that kind of option, um, it's really hard for them to conceptualize. I think uh, it was by about the, the three days leading up to moving into the hotel that I really grasped what I was asking of people. And I was asking them to put a lot of faith in a system that hadn't really worked for them before. Yeah. I was asking them to leave everything that they had built when they had nothing. Cause you didn't show up at this encampment with stuff. You didn't show up with a lot. You usually showed up because everything fell apart and these are your people. Um, and they built a life there and had a lot going on. I, I wouldn't say that people were necessarily thriving and doing their best. We've had um, a handful of deaths in the last couple of months there. We had someone die right before moving into the hotels because people were sick and they're vulnerable. But I was asking them to trust me and to trust this resource 
And I didn't even know entirely what it would look like. And so I think bringing a bit of humility into that of like, I get what I'm asking and I get why you wouldn't trust it. I'm not sure I entirely trust it. And we're going to have to work together so that if something isn't working, it doesn't mean that you're out on the streets because now the risk wasn't just that the hotel didn't work out or the resource didn't work out or they pieced out and didn't want it. Now they also didn't have their community to go back to. And so I think it added an extra level of pressure on us to just like rise to the occasion. Um, and so we did get everyone in. We've been focusing on this other encamp these other encampments around um, this park and trying to get people in. I think at this point we've gotten around 47 or um, 48 people from that encampment in. Um, lots of things around once someone comes, all of a sudden a week later, they've got a partner that you never heard of, didn't know, even though they've been working with you for years. Um, you know, it's a big transition to go indoors. Uh, people are used to living outside with a lot of freedom and a lot of um, just no one's really telling them what to do or if, it, if they are, it looks very different. And now they're in what we cannot help but be institutional about. Like these hotels are institutional. Even the bus coming from the encampment to the hotel, I had everyone tell me like, this, is, this feels a whole lot like the intake process into jail. Uh, <laughs> and I've never been to jail. So I didn't, you know, I had to own that. I had to be like, yep, that probably is true. It is more institutional than they're used to. And it came out of nowhere. And there was no like transition prep paperwork kind of process for people coming into this. And their information around COVID-19 is different than ours. And their access information is different and their ideas around it. We all have a different idea of this and, and what it is and different questions about it. Um, but we take for granted our access to information. And so there's lots of trust issues. There's lots of barriers to this. But so far, what we've seen is that like people really do want to get indoors as fast as they can, and they are scared, and they're willing to go, and they're willing to engage in a new way. So I think there's a leverage there that we can all use. But that's where I think it's really important that we kind of really respect what we're asking of people here and really respect their community and their lives that they've built um, when our systems weren't really able to meet those needs. Um, I feel like there's a million things I could talk about with this. So I'd, I'd rather kind of just put that there and wait for some questions so that I can keep it super relevant. Um, Sarah, unless there's anything that I didn't touch on that you really wanted me to so far. No, I, I just thank you, Lynn, for really highlighting something that gets lost in the media and in the discussion, um, around community and the fact that the reason that people uh, find it hard to, to leave things behind is we might not value, we might not see their stuff in the same way they do. We, we might not see the, the ties in those communities the way that they do, but those are the things that are helping them survive. And it's true for every human being. We all need our communities. We all need our stuff. We all need those ties to make it through. So I, I think that was a really beautiful point for you to bring up. Um, and thank you for sharing that. Yeah, uh, I had it. I heard it on a podcast once um, really stuck with me. If you're going to really provide shelter to people who are unsheltered and have been for a long time, you have to allow for um, their people, their pets and their privacy. Uh, and without those things, like they're not really going to be as successful as they could be with all three of them. Those are like a triple set threat of a resource that really makes a lot of sense for people um, that they're willing to look at. So, uh, really important that you don't discard 
those the pets that people have and they want to bring. I tried really hard to get this woman to come in with her rooster. She has a legitimate emotional support rooster. She did not want to engage with me uh, on the last day when we're trying to get people in. I've met her so many times. I've talked to her. I'm very afraid of birds, but I've been trying to get over that to engage with her. And her bird, her rooster attacked me and like started pecking at my feet. So it was like a hard no from her end. <laughs> she was the only person from the encampment who was just a no. And I'm still working with her friends to try and get her to come later. And mm-hmm. that she really did believe that this was like end of days and that what we were doing was taking people away to kill them. Um, so the paranoia that people feel and the distrust they have of our system is so real. And if we can't own that and live in that space and just accept it for what it is, it, it'll feel a lot like people just don't want the resource, but it's not that they don't want the resource. It's that they don't trust who's offering it. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a hugely important point to make as well, especially what we know about mental health and um, just because someone like whether you, the threat is real or perceived, it still has the same impact on your body and your thoughts. And so when people are perceiving threats from the system, from people that are trying to help or uh, from something that is unfamiliar, it's it's happening to them as if it's a real threat. And so I think that's a really valuable thing that you've got us to think about. So Aileen, um, we're going to pass it over to Corey now, but I invite you to remain uh, and answer questions and, and take part in our discussion. And I just want to say thank you for taking the time out of what is a very important uh, project that you're working on right now to be with us today. All right, Corey, over to you. I just wanted to to echo what Sarah had said and and thank you Aylin for that that was that was fantastic and it was so great to hear some of the the lessons that you've learned and the importance of keeping family and community and and that extended street family together is just it's so on point it was a great segue into into talking about what's happening here in Victoria and in British Columbia so um I appreciate that thank you your people, your pets, and your privacy is something that I'm going to I'm going to hold on to from this presentation. Mm-hmm. So obviously, COVID has demonstrated what we already know, um, which is housing is a protective factor. Um, housing, therefore, is a matter of health, and housing, therefore, is a is a human right. And if we can understand that everybody needs to be able to protect themselves in a pandemic, and that housing is a primary protective factor in a pandemic then we have to acknowledge that everyone is deserving of housing. Now, COVID-19 definitely shines an uncomfortable light on some of our health and social inequities, um, as Aileen and Sarah have alluded to already. Um, I always like to bookmark some of the statements from our our national leaders here regarding uh, COVID and and marginalized populations um, and, and just really kind of shine a light on the fact that while we echo the statement, nobody is going to be left behind and that we echo the statement that we're all in this together. It isn't always reflected in the way that we treat people and the way we go about responding to this pandemic. If you want to understand how this whole encampment dilemma began here in in Victoria, then you would have to look way past COVID-19. This is not the first time we've seen um, what can only be described as uh, a bit of a toxic housing crisis. This one was a bit different, though, because COVID obviously added some compounding factors. As shelters decreased capacity or in some instances closed their doors because of public health recommendations, people were systematically forced into a different situation. The 900 block filled up 
and movements were established to create an encampment at Topaz Park. And so that's one of the very different pieces of this situation is that um, Topaz in particular is a state created encampment. It was a place that people were sent to um, and supports were offered and promises were made. One tent turned into 20, then 50, then up to 225 in the span of two weeks. It was clear that we were on a bit of a precipice of creating some incredible harms. Despite promises made, it took over seven days to provide soap and water. It took over 17 days to provide shower access. And it's been over 45 days now, and there is still no laundry services. A group of advocates, and I'll just say there with a caveat, this is during a, a global pandemic. A group of advocates, community agencies, academics, key stakeholders sent an urgent open letter to the provincial government asking for six urgent actions to address these glaring inequities. One was to mobilize housing supply and offer to those in need. The next was to allow people to shelter in place if they choose to. The next was to implement safer supply initiatives in the face of dual healthcare crises of overdose and COVID. The next was non-discriminatory healthcare and testing availability. We asked for decriminalization of survival-based activities, including small personal possession of substances. And we asked above all else for respect for human rights and lived experience. After we received minimal response from the letter, uh, we were recirculating it and we received endorsements from over 170 different organizations, physicians, leaders, and even the city of Victoria. But here's what we got instead. Instead of a public health order that encompassed all of our asks, we were given a public safety order for decampments. Uh, this public safety order is mired in enforcement language and paints people who are homeless as safety risks. The same people we pushed into the parks are now being told by May 9th that they have to move. At present, there is no guarantee that wraparound supports will be in place um, and there are no current moratoriums on evictions. Last week, I worked with someone who had been housed into the hotels already, then evicted the next day. And when I asked if, when he asked me if he could remain in the park after May 9th and I inquired, I was told that they don't have to they don't have to access the hotels, but they can't stay here. And that's just one of many reasons we have to question the rationale for mobilizing a public safety order versus a public health order. An inquisitive mind would ask, why are we only focusing on Topaz, Pandora and Oppenheimer? The answer is that's where the visible poverty is. That's what generates public outrage, and, and generally that's what generates changes in voting patterns. In reality, in British Columbia, we have about 7,600 homeless individuals, and this public safety order will not touch that number. To understand what this feels like for people who are in encampments, you have to actually spend some time here. Uh, you can review the evidence as well. It's well documented that repeated displacements, loss of property, high police presence can generate trauma. That trauma or fear of experiencing more of it leads to further isolation, which significantly increases risk of death by overdose, among many other things. The data fences went up around the perimeter of the park. Staff reported about 30% of the campers immediately vacated. If that doesn't tell you how people feel about being fenced in or treated as criminals, then you aren't paying enough attention. And almost as if someone was paying attention out there, we received a really timely and robust document. This is the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights to Housing, a national protocol for homeless encampments in Canada. This document is available in the handout section of the webinar and will be posted to the HSA BC resource section of their website. 
we can take a look at some of the more relevant principles here and recommendations as they pertain to the situation on the ground. So first and foremost, these principles recognize that residents of homeless encampments are rights holders. And one of the things that we really need to highlight is that means we need to shift away from criminalizing or penalizing or even obstructing homeless encampments. And we need to shift over to a, an approach that's rooted in rights-based participation and accountability. When I asked about the use of barricades as a form of obstruction, I was informed by the organizers, we don't cage people in. Just hold on to that statement for a second. Now, the second principle is about meaningful engagement, and I really have to highlight what Elin said. Um, I'm going to do my best to say Elin because I was corrected on name pronunciation. And I really try to work on that. Um, but a lot of really great engagement happened in the story that Elin talked about. And that isn't necessarily what's been happening thus far here on the ground in Victoria and possibly abroad. What the principle recommends is that engagement should begin early, be ongoing and proceed under the principle that residents are experts in their own lives. I remember being on a phone call and asking where our lived experience was in the consultation. And a representative told me, we have lived experience on our panel, Corey. And then I said, yeah, but you need the lived experience of the people who are actually in the encampments. And that statement was followed by crickets in about two minutes of silence before we moved on to the next subject. So while they say that they don't cage people, it's important to always question the use of communication and the dangers of tokenism. This is what people who are actually in the encampment have told me they feel about the barricades. I woke up and the fences all moved. I went to get lunch again and the fences had moved. We couldn't find an exit at one point. I feel like I'm being caged in. The fences seem like they're trying to intimidate us. The workers look at us like we're not good people. They don't look right at us. We don't want this any more than they do. Shelters are closed and we literally have nowhere to go. We were told this was the place we were allowed to be and now they're fencing us in. And last, I had to cut through the fence at night because I didn't know where the exit was and I was scared. Principle three is about prohibiting forced evictions from homeless encampments. So there are some common reasons to justify evictions of encampments, and those are usually things like public interest, city beautification, development or redevelopment, or at the behest of private sectors to justify forced evictions. But those are not good reasons. Instead of seeing a public health order in the face of a dual crisis, we got a public safety order mired in enforcement language. One police officer told me that people having weapons in their tents was a reason to enact a public safety order. Public safety or perception of lack thereof has long been a reason to displace or evict homeless encampments. But people in the park have been assaulted. They've been robbed repeatedly, imaginably evicted and criminalized every person who has a knife in their house. We are creating oppressive systems and then we criminalize people who are trying to survive them. Principle five relates to ensuring that relocation is human rights compliant. More specifically, relocation must not result in the continuation or exacerbation of homelessness. In the past encampments, uh, there were situations where people wanted to self-govern. They wanted the option to be able to regulate their own policy, to, to be able to create their sense of community. But that's not what happened in the instance with Topaz Park, and that's still not happening to date. And then, as I've said before, it took a long time to even get basic needs two people, like bathrooms, soap, water, showers. This is during a global pandemic. 
Topaz in particular was a park where people were sent to. And now we need to talk a little bit about the overdose crisis. So what does police presence, fences, forced displacement, and social isolation and increased volatility in the drug market mean to people who are already at risk? In one day last week, I personally responded to seven overdoses in the park in one day. Five of them were in one hour. There is significant drug market volatility right now, and there is risk with putting people into hotels who don't have access to a safe supply. I spent some time working with the drug testers um, in Victoria, and we've received some really important information about what's currently out there on the street. We've tested samples that people have brought in after unusual overdose presentations, and one thing is clear. Prior to the pandemic, we thought that the pandemic would decrease the potency of fentanyl, um, and then we would start to see other substances brought into it, like benzodiazepines. In fact, we saw both um, increase. We saw an increase in fentanyl and we saw an increase in other drugs being cut inside the drug supply. The drug that specifically caused that number of overdoses was reported to contain 20% fentanyl and an animal sedative called xylazine. Now, pre-pandemic, most drug samples had an average of about 5% fentanyl in them. So we are at a significantly higher risk at this time. Safe supply is available, but it still remains incredibly high barrier. Case-by-case -case consultation with individual prescribers, often resulting in the patient being held hostage by ideology or risk aversion. Um, so what we're saying to people is housing is a good thing. Hotels are a good thing. But if we're not planning, if we're not doing things safely, if we're not ensuring the supports that need to be there are in place, we're potentially increasing risk. And we're doing so at a very high risk period. So the time is now to advocate for a different response to homelessness. Um, we have Canada-specific protocols from the UN Rapporteur, and that is brand new and backed by evidence and legal precedents. We have proof that the current plan contravenes evidence and ethics. We have proof that previous strategies were in bad faith or created harms. So what we're asking is that we all do our best to advocate that things like the May 9th deadline be rescinded immediately that this province is enacted under the guise of public health, not public safety, that we remove oppressive tools like fences, that we do proper, true and meaningful engagement with people who are homeless, who are actually at the camps, that healthcare providers and service providers are substantively involved to determine a workable and realistic service delivery plan, that housing and shelter contents Contracts stipulate that residents shall have the same rights and eviction protections as tenants who are housed under the RTA, and that housing and shelter contracts um, make sure that it keeps in mind the fact that people have a right to self-advocate and to self-govern. One thing I've been saying for quite a while is that one day, maybe soon, um, but one day COVID-19 will pass, uh, but what it will leave behind is a wake of harms on people who are most vulnerable to institutional oppressors. There certainly are cases in our country and abroad of homeless populations being impacted by this crisis, but the collateral damage so far of COVID-19 has been significantly stronger than COVID itself to the folks who are impacted by homelessness here in Victoria and in other places in BC. So my shameless plug to you is as frontline workers, as EDs, as managers, to dust off your advocacy muscles and do everything you can to make sure that everything we do to get people into hotels is framed under a human rights and public health lens. 
Um, thank you very much for having me today. I really appreciate getting to be a part of this conversation. Thank you, Corey. It's interesting. We're kind of tracing a, a thread here. So we've heard from Aileen about um, her efforts and the importance of connection with people, the importance of recognizing trauma and the importance of community. And then we've heard from you about human rights and your on the ground experience of being in one of the camps that is currently in the process of being decamped. And we've heard about uh, your passion for advocacy, as well as um, you've really brought to mind some voices of people who are experiencing this, which I think is important to remember as we try to implement things, um, that it is actually important to hear um, how it is impacting people. And so I just want to invite, um, thank you so much for sharing all of that, Corey, and for the work that you're doing. And I'm going to invite Duncan uh, to join us. He's been here the whole time. But um, Duncan, you're in an interesting position because you're actually involved right now in the process of decampment, both in Victoria and um, at Oppenheimer. And I'd be interested to hear how it's going for you, uh, what the challenges you're facing uh, in implementation and what you, the team at PHS is doing uh, on the ground right now. Hi, all. Um, I'm actually here with Tanya Fader, the director, senior director of housing with the PHS as well. Great. Um, nice to see you, Tanya. Hi. Um, in our engagement, I couldn't uh, herald more of the previous statements around deep, long-standing, and authentic engagement with the population that are in these encampments. Um, we've heard it uh, from both parties previously about the importance of that connection. Uh, us arriving with uh, a simple hotel room or, and sadly, SRO stock or other uh, housing options, should they be available, is not the solution. Quite frankly, many individuals who are in uh, homes encampments or tent cities, as the case may be, are there because housing has failed them multiple times previously. And I think it's a really core component of the conversation that housing has failed them. They have not failed housing. Um, there's no such thing as non-normal behaviors, right? They're very normal behaviors that people might have that we don't see in other sectors and cross-sections of society to deal with absolutely abnormal situations that people are forced into. And part of that is spending, like in Oppenheimer, the previous eight months with deep enhanced outreach into that uh, community to better understand the needs of the individual. Um, the, the, the previous blanket approach of, well, I mean, we have this housing stock, why won't they take it? Um, which is rarely often the case that you have enough housing mm -hmm. to meet the needs of the homeless. Um, does not honor or recognize the importance of individual needs. None of the individuals participating in this uh, webinar currently, we don't all live in the same set of housing. We have, by virtue of the options in front of us and the things that we so choose, have chosen different forms of housing for ourselves. And I think it's a very core component of a successful housing offer and enhanced outreach and engagement with the population to recognize that each individual might have different needs um, and thus different options that will work best for them. Yeah, and just to reiterate some of the uh, things that were said earlier, um, it's really, really important for us to continue to recognize the community that does form in park encampments and the familial groups that form or families that end up um, gathering in the park because that's where they can actually live together. And that's going to be really important moving forward, uh, dealing with any encampments to really recognize that. And I feel like that's something that uh, that ball was dropped many times in previous move-ins. Um, 
So uh, I just want to make that make that really clear that that's something we're always going to have to have an eye on mm -hmm. moving forward. And also that we, as we move people inside during a health crises, during one health crisis, during a pandemic, um, that we, we don't lose sight on the need for permanent housing for folks that are, that are right now getting temporarily placed for safety mm -hmm. reasons. Yeah. So, so Duncan and Tanya, how's it going? Like we've got this uh, order um, yeah. for May 9th. How's it going for you guys? Fast and furious. Yeah. Uh, lots of boots on the ground. Busy, busy every day. Um, our team is working seven days a week to um, help get people inside in a way that um, suits their current needs the best. Obviously, their, their permanent housing needs will look different. Um, but yeah, it's been uh, really, really busy days, but also really um, definitely some really hopeful things and some people really uh, happy to be getting inside at this juncture. Sure. Uh, from a pragmatic uh, point of view, from those of you who will be working to do these transitions the uh, and supports and offering housing options to the homeless, it has been uh, really key that we're coming back to the same people over and over again. Um, that we're presenting the options that are available uh, to that person. And I think it's really core to understand that we all have good days and bad days. And uh, be checking a box beside, let's say, my name, Duncan Hagen, hey, do you want housing? No, F off, I don't. Then not returning to me uh, does not honor the the hardship and, and the real ardor of living outside and without the necessary supports that you might need or, or that you might want. And so it has been both fast and furious, and at the same time, playing the long game, uh, supporting individuals day to day. Mm -hmm. And I think a core thing is that the day to day needs of any given individual can change drastically. Mm -hmm. um, and honoring that process. Um, when we talk about the fencing, uh, as was discussed previously, um, as individuals come down in Oppenheimer, um, I think the report today was 147 individuals have found temporary transitional housing. Um, transition to what? I know not, which is part of the problem with that language. Um, uh, through from the park with the remaining identified 60 to 70 individuals. Um, and in our experience of, of working in encampments, um, uh, you'll get to the, the, the cusp of supporting a population that are perhaps more willing or more able to find new and recent housing. And then near the last week or the, the culmination of it, you have uh, the more challenging individuals, uh, excuse me, not individuals, challenging performances of historical trauma, exclusion, marginalization, potentially addiction at your hands, and then trying to find those best fits. Um, I think we all know the performance of the complex hoarder in uh, in the homeless population, and where where do we find a successful housing option for that individual or person, um, or what of the you know low level drug dealer with five dogs? How do we support that individual, a victim as well, to uh, find and support housing? So that's the complexity of the work we do. Um, of the, that deep enhanced outreach allows for you to understand where that person might best be housed. And I can't come back to it enough in this conversation um, that if a homeless individual cannot access housing, that is not the homeless individual's fault. That is our fault to not provide housing that fits the needs of the individual. And so uh, I can't imagine, as I happen to be a dog owner, if I had to pick between housing or uh, the animal I care for, uh, because I would live in an encampment if I had to make that decision. But 
we see time and time again the homeless population being required to make those really horrendous um, decisions between housing and healthcare, which I find as an intersection, and let's say the one thing on earth that doesn't judge and love me. Mm-hmm. So it's been complex and at the same time uh, wonderful to see people get inside. Mm-hmm. Want to be inside. And um, I know Corey and Ellen want to have, have have a bit of a chat here and chat with you, but um, can you just talk very briefly about what your like the work that you guys are doing in Oppenheimer and Topaz, what kind of housing they're going into? Because I think there's kind of a, there's a news out there, oh, we have all these spaces or the ministry is saying we have X amount of spaces, but what do those spaces actually look like? And are they, how are you finding them? Uh, or how are, how are they, are they working out? You know, talk to me a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So again, it's kind of a complicated uh, situation and I know that, um, it's difficult for um, governments to secure spaces quickly um, that are are going to have the flexibility needed to even temporarily house a lot of the population that that we're trying to get inside during this pandemic. Um, so so there are still barriers. So there are, um, you know, what are typically commercial hotel rooms that um, certain parts of them have been secured um, by our government, which is great. Um, but again, there are, are still, you know, we're, we're still finding there, those barriers of no pets, no smoking inside, no right. bicycle. We've run into all of those kind of things. And um, and then the other settings are, are hostile. And I know uh, they're going to be relying on some shelter spaces as well. And again, like uh, previous speakers were saying, um, I think it was Lynn was saying that, uh, you know, shelter spaces are, are, you know, in order to create more physical distancing, some shelters have less people in them now or have shut down. I, kn- I know I can speak for our shelter uh, in Vancouver, the New Fountain, that we are always over capacity. So we're not in any sort of position to help in, in uh, mm-hmm. extra shelter spaces. Um, and obviously, hostels are, are a different scenario than a self-contained hotel room, which is the best for um, health purposes. Um, but yeah, I really need to, um, you know, I think there's lots of learning to be done with from this and moving forward. We need to make sure that people are, are getting self-contained units, um, whether it's uh, temporary or not, um, that don't, that don't still throw up more barriers to them in that regard. Um, that said, we our staff on the ground because of relationship building over several months of being uh, engaged in the park are um, have been able to really, really help a lot of people uh, find a spot to land just in a, in a temporary basis, at least. So, and for us, what we're operating is we have come online operating a uh, converting a hostel, I suppose. Uh, no, not even, I suppose, yeah. a hostel and converting that for 33 units of uh, potential support of supportive housing um, with the shared bathrooms is the difficulty in that setting. However, we are able to remove all those other barriers with the exclusion of uh, shared bathrooms, as in you can bring your pet, you can smoke in your room like anybody else within our society can, and that includes whatever you might be smoking, um, as well as couples staying together, which I find to be a very... Um, one of the not sought after we, we heard mentioned earlier, not thought about components of uh, of offering this housing often, mm-hmm. uh, because I can promise you that if my wife and I were to become homeless, we would say uh, live in a tent disconnected from all services and supports rather than be separated and segregated on the premise of gender uh, or the fact that couples can't stay together. 
Um, so that's what we have in Vancouver. In Victoria, we are we are not supporting the necessary moves. We're not in the camps themselves, um, although we have teams that go and do outreach across Victoria. Uh, but we are helping to support the transition to an arena um, using uh, a large capacity of um, dividers and offices cubicles. cubicles to create personal space right. in a less ideal setting, let me assure you. Mm, right. Yeah. And so trying to as humane uh, a space as possible inside what it is well I mean it's a hockey arena an intrinsically cold environment mm -hmm. um, and that will provide for 50 units uh, of shelter on a temporary basis for individuals being moved uh, from a park again just like in Vancouver Victoria is being made up of hotel units mm -hmm. and and other settings we are supporting the arena setting we heard it said multiple times um, across the homelessness and housing spectrum we have a acute uh, deficiency in available units of housing that fits the needs of the population already long before COVID were a crisis and an issue. Um, and as said earlier, um, the need and capacity for outreach workers to be making available and supporting individuals to seek and access safe supply mm -hmm. really yes. is a core component uh, of the safe sheltering of individuals who lived in community previously and now will find themselves in many regards isolated with the door between them and other community members. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's let everybody see our faces. I forgot to say this before we started. So if you have um, the ability to put your webcam on, you can do that now. And then I'm going to just let um, Corey and Aylin and Tanya and uh, Duncan um the only thing I want to say to frame this part, we've got about half an hour to talk together is, and I'll put my own webcam on here, um, is that uh, we want to be able to give the people on the line um, some practical tools and things to think about in terms of uh, implementation that they can take away from this call today and, and make things better. Uh, today in their work. So just as a kind of backing piece there, um, but I know, Corey, you have some questions and, uh, and Aileen, feel free to jump in as well. Yeah, my first question was more of a, more probably just a discussion piece. And I, so I wanted to start with Aileen and um, I'm, I'm a little naive about LA, but can you tell me a little bit about what like the overdose context is where you're working and what kind of, what kind of overdose prevention or, or planning services come along with hotel access there? <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're very, very far behind Vancouver. Um, so it's not good. And it's not talked about and harm reduction is still a very new concept here. Um, so it's, it's not something that people want to talk about. Um, I always recognize even when Sarah asked me to do that, do this, this panel, oftentimes people ask me, what should we do? How should we get through this? And then for some reason, my ideas are far too radical for them. And I don't know why people keep asking me what my opinion is. Um, and the, the overdose um, problem was one of them where you know, everyone wanted to set these up with the same rules as all of our shelters, with all the same barriers in place that we've always had, um, to the point where we've got a quarantine site that we're running, um, which is usually like 14 days for people who are COVID positive, who are also unhoused. And it's um, across the county, 
for people who are behaviorally challenging. And so a lot of mental health, a lot of addiction issues. And even at that site, like we're providing um, alcohol and pot to people to try and incentivize them to stay because there's nothing that actually, like they're not forced to stay. There's no reason they have to stay. It's not jail, um, but they are positive and we want to keep them from from spreading that in, in the population and in our community. So we were able to, for the first time ever, provide substances to people, but the nurses on site want to check people's bags and take other drugs from them as they come in. I'm like, well, that's the perfect way to just make sure that they don't stay. Um, so yeah. people have a really hard time with harm reduction here. They have a really hard time with talking about substance use um, in general. And then you add in the complexities of the population we're serving and, and the bias that's already there. And most of our funders will not touch that discussion. And so I'll say that I think we're doing nothing in terms of overdose prevention because we won't even talk about it. My, the agency I work for will talk about it a bit. Um, and the best that we've been able to come up with is trying to create a culture where people trust us to tell us it's happening. Um, and that's kind of the best that we've got right now. Uh, you can't even find a controlled alcohol consumption site in Los Angeles let alone safe consumption of anything else. It just doesn't exist. Um, so I, I tend to bring a lot of stuff back from Vancouver whenever I'm there, whether it's pamphlets or anything, anything to work with, because it's just not a discussion here. And it is happening a lot. Um, and the, the thing that I recognized the most with um, the Paxton and Bradley encampment was when COVID-19 started happening, the streets started to get much more dangerous because there was less people around. And like you said, the supply chain was altered and it changed a little bit of everything. Um, and, and it was only when we started moving into the hotels that people from that encampment after 10 months started telling me what they were using and expressing concern over that. And so I think it took all of that trust to be able to get there. But beyond that, I've got very little to offer other than I'm not going to take your stuff away from you. Let's talk about if there's any other options that you want and just trust us enough to not have to hide it. Mm -hmm. But then our housekeeping staff will just take it away and throw it away and try and kick them out for it. So, uh, you know, it's, it's ongoing. Yeah. And I, I totally can acknowledge the fact that um, America is, is significantly different for sure. Is there a take on naloxone or, or community-based naloxone distribution? Yeah. 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 We do have that. Um, and it's brand new to our agency. We're about to train up our 300 staff on having naloxone. Um, and we, we do have it in the hotels and we are giving it out. Uh, you run into a lot of problems because of health insurance. Um, and you can only access that stuff from certain clinics that take your insurance and it gets really complicated really fast. So we do have naloxone on site. Um, and we are going through the process of training people on that. So I just have a question here from uh, someone on the line, and this is a great one for all of you because we've been talking about the potential for harm, but also the help in decamping um, and providing spaces for people. And this question is around someone in Edmonton, actually. Um, they're talking about the fact that the encampments are just starting to pop up as the weather has warmed up. And there's been some talk about a government sanction sanctioned encampment site where hand washing toilets can be supplied. And they're saying, would you recommend this? So coming back to, to you all as you're working to get people out of encampments and 
into hotels or working to make encampments safer places. I just also want to give a shout out to someone on the line who is up in um, Smithers and they've put together a wellness camp for about 10 individuals who do not want to engage with any kind of system. And they've done that really effectively with uh, proper sanitation, uh, meals being delivered and other supports in that you know, it's a small town, it's a smaller number of people, but yeah, talk to me about uh, recommendations around this. Um, so I, I think within the permanent framework, if we're talking on that front, and if the best of a collection of options for people is to live outdoors independently with an encampment and where other options that they would take aren't available, then of course a medically supported encampment um, is an improvement upon what would be a deregulated or just an abandonment of the population. Uh, I think we can, uh, for the most part, agree that the access and capacity the ideal is that someone to have their own unit of housing with their own bathroom um, mm -hmm. that they're able to access. When that isn't available, my ethos of around harm reduction is that we need to round sharp corners. And in that case, a encampment and a supported or uh, organized encampment would be a good option as opposed to nothing, right? Mm -hmm. Particularly when we talk about the, the scenario in Smithers where we have a collection of individuals for whom that wellness and health encampment seems like a really good option for those individuals who won't engage and don't want to engage other options available. Mm -hmm. And we've seen in Oppenheimer even as an unsanctioned camp, um, when we were able to uh, send uh, enhanced outreach in uh, to connect with community in that camp, um, we were able to greatly improve the health and safety there, um, even with the limitations of, you know, not having bathrooms, not having field house open, all those things. We were able to do a lot of fire safety stuff, a lot of overdose prevention stuff, um, working to, um, make the spaces between tents uh, bigger um, and, and less clutter in the park. So um, even in an unsanctioned uh, way, you can create uh, a lot a lot more safety in those scenarios. So obviously, obviously one that is set up to be more of a, a managed encampment, so to speak, um, has the potential to uh, you know, provide greater hygiene and medical in intervention. Obviously, again, not an ideal, not something that we want to have as a as a go to scenario. We want to always have our eye on permanent um, safe housing for mm -hmm. individuals and families. Corey. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I would have to I, I would definitely agree um, with with some subtle caveats in that the, the example in Smithers is is a great grassroots example. The example given about Edmonton. It sounds more like a state-run encampment, and there comes some cautions with with that type because a lot of these grassroots encampments that we've seen before, um, they came with a strong set of community. But the but the sanctioned ones, they they come with a mix of people who aren't necessarily already connected, and it, it, from just from an anecdotal standpoint, it feels a bit different. The the tone there, the the way in which people are, are experiencing their own oppressors and not able to connect with each other as well. Um, and so I would always say like, yes, getting to a better option, especially during a time of crisis is really important, but you need to hold the government accountable if they're going to promise 
um, yeah. to put in things like like health services that they're going to promise that you need that you need to go here during a pandemic. There needs to be access to clean water and soap. There needs to be access to bathrooms. There needs to be access to overdose prevention services, and it needs to come with the onset of the camp, not not gradually. Um, yeah. Because if it takes a week, if it takes a month to to get in place, then you greatly breached trust. And then afterwards, it's so, so hard to get people to believe you that I have somewhere better for you, you can go to because the last time you told them that they ended up in squalor. And so you really need to make sure you're holding holding government account. Um, we had to create our own hand washing stations, build our own hand washing stations and put them along Pandora and Topaz for the first seven days. Um, these crude kind of pails, um, uh, the Indigenous Harm Reduction Team and Solid did an amazing job putting those together and making sure they were refilled. Um, and it just, it created more and more trauma for people early on. So yes to it, but it should always come with choice because if you're displacing someone, uh, you need to make sure that you're not exacerbating their homelessness even further through that displacement. Mm -hmm. um, and the other thing I would say, the other recommendation, practical tip I would give, if this is something that's going to go through, is whoever's on the ground right away uh, working in those places to do what you can to support some kind of community council within the encampment. Mm. Bring them together, ask them what they need, support them in developing their own little bit of governance on the inside so that they know how to advocate for themselves as well when things start to change. Yeah, yeah that's totally good. With all of that, Corey, totally. Yeah. So I have a question here that was submitted actually to HSABC from somebody who is currently camping in Langford. Um, and this is an interesting one because it brings us back to this uh, tension that I want you guys to talk about and, and, and tell me about your experience. And that is enforcement. So, you know, we have this order coming down um, and then there are police around um, and there are there are certain things that, you know, we're advocating for in terms of harm reduction, but we're coming up against some uh, actual directives. So this is the question. Hello, my name is Jason and I have a couple of questions. We are in Langford, B.C. and we're homeless. The police came to our camp today and said that we have three days to go somewhere else during this time of crisis. Can they do this? Uh, they said that Langford refuses to help us out and they're pushing us around. So there's a question here that I think Corey touched on a little bit and Duncan as well. Um, because it's a dual health emergency, you know, we, we're trying to do the best for people and maybe this scenario isn't ideal, but then you have this added layer of a health emergency with some enforcement. So talk to me about that. What would you say to this? What would you say to Jason? I would say that that's really crappy that that's happening and that you're not the only one who's experiencing that. I don't know if I still have control over you do, yeah. the PowerPoints, but I wanted to just bring it back to this one statement here. This is amazing new Twitter group that's come out um, called the, the Humans at Beacon, and it's the Beacon Hill Park um, folks who have been camping there for quite a long time. Um, assuming that I did actually put that. Humans at Beacon Hill Park. Um, so bylaws asking campers at Beacon to relocate to Topaz under threat of forced eviction from Beacon, even when we have no issues here and had no incidents to date. Um, and, and as far as homeless people not wanting to go into rooms, there's trust issues. Uh, we've been lied and jumped through many hoops to get there. Um, and so people are already experiencing this all over. And that's one of the problems with 
um, framing this as a public safety order versus a public health order, because when it comes as a public safety order, it comes with a lot more power from enforcement, from law enforcement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes choice gets squashed a little bit. The new UN Rapporteur um, document also mentioned that if people want to remain in situ, if they want to shelter in place, that the onus is on the government to actually prove that they can't make their current living situation better before forcing an eviction. Uh, mm-hmm. And so what I can say is, unfortunately, yes, that's happening. Um, and it's a very real reality for people. Um, but there are new regulations and new guidelines and new recommendations that are coming out to try and counter some of that. Anyone else want to talk to Jason here? <laughs> um, just simply to commiserate with that uh, hard and next to impossible scenario that's being played out there, particularly with a what sounds like a municipality that is unwilling to do the necessary, mm-hmm. necessary work to find uh, better and more supportive, not necessarily even supportive, but healthier options for that population, for those two individuals. Um, we have seen this uh, in other municipalities uh, that we've come to work in. That included years ago working in Abbotsford, um, where there was a, a, a unabashed animosity um, towards, to say the least, at least, yeah, towards the population of individuals uh, who were left and forced to live outdoors. And so, just that I'm very sorry that scenario has been playing out, and that there lack sounds as though there are deep lack of supports available. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, how are you, how are you handling this as advocates and people that, you know, my question really is, where do you decide to lean into enforcement and where do you decide to lean into harm reduction? Because sometimes those things are not, uh, they don't jive. <laughs> mm-hmm. We, I know that we work really hard to keep conversations with all stakeholders involved, including um, law enforcement agencies and, and people um, to try and mitigate some of that potential harm that can happen. And that, and that um, you know, obviously there's fear and mistrust uh, between um, the populations we serve and uh, any sort of any sort of enforcement, understandably so. Um, and because of past and very current uh, practices that sometimes occur. So we just really try to keep those lines of communication out, open, have regular meetings uh, across all parties. Um, and, um, you know, just as advocates, we're able sometimes to, at the beginning of these processes, kind of push things a little bit in the sense of uh, what we need in order to uh, help all government authorities uh, deal with these situations. So, for example, uh, we have been we have been told that, you know, before we started this process of helping people move from from Oppenheimer, um, we were given the the uh, the guarantee for what it's worth, um, which I, I do believe that the, the intent behind it is that as long as we are still successfully intervening and and doing outreach and finding ways to move people on uh, beyond the, that May 9th magical date, um, that that enforcement will will not become the norm as long as we're still effectively um, able to be assisting people in the park. So I hope that that is stuck to and we're going to do everything we can to make sure that we're still engaging in a way that makes that enforcement as uh, as non-necessary as possible. And from a 
from, from an ethical perspective, uh, I hang my hat, uh, not just on my head, but on the hook of harm reduction. And, uh, and regardless of our engagement and support of that population, at some point or another, uh, an intervention of forcible displacement is going to occur. And from a harm reduction ethic and ethos, um, if I can round those corners and potentially have a less traumatic access to another site and yeah. place in space, it is uh, for me personally, and many of the people that we work alongside, uh, the core of what we do. So it is to support and minimize the trauma and the harm inherent in the displacement, um, right, without being an agent of uh, displacing individuals from the site and the essential choices that they to be in. Um, and that is a delicate dance uh, and one that if we felt were ethically um, correct or stood against it, we would not be participating in. Mm -hmm. It reminds me of something that you said. Uh, thank you, Duncan and, and Tanya. It reminds me of something you said, Aileen, about um, storing people's stuff. You knew the city was going to come in and do a cleanup and you knew it was going to be happening soon. So you had to try to figure out uh, how to lessen the harm of people losing their only belongings and yet knowing that it was going to happen. Um, how did you yeah. about doing so it was that? actually the city it was actually the city storing their stuff um, oh, and they cool. do it in a really weird way they've been doing it forever um, or doing it so they do cleanups they post it and they say you can go and get your stuff for 90 days and they classify it as like anything that uh, public health risk so it's got mold on it as a tent or something they can throw out and then anything that is personal belongings they store for 90 days I have yet to meet a person who had their stuff taken away who ever got it back um, so I, this time I have the information on how to get it back. Um, and I have it literally listed and labeled in like a map of each tent versus which storage it's in. It's all over the city at this point, which seems really dumb and inefficient to me. Um, either way. Uh, so there's, there's a lot there, but the city of LA actually stopped all encampment cleanups, um, about a week before this one happened, which, is great. I've been wanting them to do that forever. It took a public health, another public health crisis to get them to do that. Um, but I wanted to kind of go back to like the, the person's question around who's being displaced. Mm -hmm. um, I know it's a really delicate dance to kind of empower people to stand up for their own rights, to get them to have the right information, to be able to protect themselves because we can't, I can't always be there. I can't go to every single cleanup and make sure that people's rights are protected. I can't be there for every time someone in enforcement is there. Um, and so how do you give people that kind of information? Um, we had people here starting to commandeer state owned houses that were empty, um, when this started and protesting and saying, we're not leaving, like we're homeless. We're not leaving this, this is state run property. I'm going to stay. Uh, and usually I'm pretty careful around our clients and around like what I say, cause I don't, I, I tend to have a lot of ideas that they love and then it, could get people in trouble. I'm not the one who's going to get arrested if I resist on anything right. like this. Right. And I want to be really careful about what I say to people. Um, but if someone came up to me from under Paxton and Bradley from under the bridge there and was like, why can't we just like have a park instead of this bridge? And this was before we had the hotel. And I was like, you know, there's no one who's really going to stop you right now. If you go and take a park, honestly, there's no one outside. Everyone's in lockdown. They didn't do it. And then within days, I was like, okay, I have a hotel. Like, let's do this. Um, but I think there's subtle moments and times where it's like, 
maybe, maybe it is okay to stand up for ourselves just a little. And I usually frame it as like, ask a lot of questions. If someone is coming to force you out, ask them a ton of questions. Cause if they don't have the answer, they're going to get stuck and have to go back to their superior. And that is usually the case. And it's not about resisting. It's about asking like, Hey, where is this coming from? Do you have any documentation? What can I do next? Like, what are my options? It's also an opportunity for us when someone says like, Hey, I'm being kicked out of this place. This is being enforced. Can they even do this? Like, well, maybe if you could do anything else, what would you want? Like, that's a great kind of segue into, all right, if they are going to enforce this, I don't know if I can stop it. Let me ask you to dream about what you might want other than this then and see if we have the resource behind it. Um, so I think just not missing that opportunity for engagement and being very nuanced, but also empowered in that, you know, there are basic rights here that people can stand up for, for themselves. Um, and I don't want to encourage people to, to do things that will get them in trouble, but I am down for a little bit of uh, just pushing back on the systems that will continue to operate no matter what. These are long-standing systems that are just running. And if nobody steps in to ask a question about them, they'll just keep running. Mm-hmm. So I think um, that's been a challenging one for me. But Yeah, thank you, Ellen. Corey, did you want to jump in at all? Um. Well, let's see. Um, speaking specifically about like your your advocacy, I will be there on on May 9th at the parks. I, I do want to see how the process rolls out, um, though I do acknowledge you can't always be there. Um, but, but we, too, have been promised that, you know, there is enforcement language, but it's not going to be that bad on the date. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, people have been given the, a very similar promise many times before in, in many different respects. And so um, another recommendation I would have for people is is to act as a witness. Like maybe you can't, but empower people to know when when something's going on, how to witness something, how to be a peer witness mm-hmm. um, so that you can document what happened and, and you can you can bring that back to decision makers and you can say this is what was said, but this is what actually happened on that date. Um, because you're right, this, these are long-standing systems and they'll continue to run. But as long as we're going about it in a way that's safe, we can definitely hold that system accountable. Yeah. I have made a lot of funders slash politicians either love or hate me in the last few weeks. <laughs> the ones whose the bridge was in their district, like they're in love with me right now, but they weren't for a very long time. Um, and, and a lot of other funders are... Uh, not not loving me i had to burn some bridges to make this happen so and that's a risk that's a risk you're going to take if you're going to be an advocate is that sometimes you realize that the people you have been working with um to get things done they are going to put up barriers sometimes and you got to pick your battles but there are certain ones that i think are worth fighting and for me having low barrier access to these hotels was a huge battle that i wanted to fight because the barriers to our shelters here just like they are in vancouver are unreal and yeah. if we did the same thing, there's I, I didn't want to do it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I can't uh, I can't tell you the number of times in the last two weeks that I've said um, I've started off a statement with this is not a personal indictment on you or how I <laughs> or or this isn't an ad hominem attack. But and then <laughs> to go into it and I'm. I'm sure I've, I've made some friends in this process, but I'm sure I've made an equal amount of people who are not overly fond of me. So yeah, it advocacy definitely comes with its risks for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Is there anything else uh, as we sort of near the end of our time together? I, I've been really appreciating this conversation. 
you know, in the midst of uh, crises, it's hard to sit down and talk together, right? We're all just out there doing the stuff and making it happen and, and trying to keep up. So uh, thank you for taking the time. But is there anything that is on your mind that you want to share, especially with our frontline workers, with our managers, with our staff who, who are facing this now? Um, and we will see how these things play out. I think uh, one of the... Uh, no, I just, I wanted to share um, kind of just for what's, like, I feel like this is a great discussion on how do we really, in a dignified way, help people to understand these resources, get to them, that we could do twice as long of a webinar on just what happens after people are in, yes. um, and what does that mean for being a frontline worker, um, because our, our entire industry is shifting as we're doing this through COVID-19, and it's going to look radically different, and our frontline workers are going to be the people who are like just pulled with that change, like constant change of it. And they already were. And now all, a bunch of their clients are inside and whether you're an outreach worker and you've still got brand new people outdoors that you have to now engage because you got a bunch of people indoors or you don't have enough case managers in your system to handle how many people are now indoors and everyone's starting to have to flex their role to become a case manager where they weren't necessarily before managers included, like, Everyone in our system right now is a case manager at this point because there's so many people in different situations. Um, my my boss has 300 people underneath her, and she's doing intakes right now, so I can be on this phone call. Um, like we're we're all having to be in it a lot. So I think for frontline providers, like it's not going to stop shifting, and it sucks how much information gets lost in the flow down. And I, my only advice is to stick to honesty with your clients and let them know, like, I don't know everything here and you yourself are probably scared and you're still out there and uh, just be really honest with people that you're trying to access new resources with them. And this is a journey you're taking together because it'll help with not disappointing people, not making them blame you for it. Um, be okay with the fact that you're going to ha have to learn as you go and you're never going to have all the information you need. Mm -hmm. yep. Thank you, Lynn. Duncan. From a uh, British Columbia standpoint or lens on this province, I think it's really important that we are empowering and uh, supporting them and accessing safe supply for, for whom that fits the, the mandate. This is not just simply opioid agonist therapy. I am talking literally safe supply of stimulant drugs as well. And it's really core component that we are advocating on behalf of individuals who are being asked to self-isolate for whom one of the very challenging things to self-isolate is getting crystal meth delivered to your hotel room, not the easiest performance, uh, if that is your framework, to be able to access a pharmaceutical, medically supported grade of both stimulants and opioid-based uh -huh. agony therapy. Um, there are hotlines that physicians are feeling uncomfortable with this that they can call and support in that pathway, um, but it is an opportunity for somebody for whom consumption is a performance of surviving uh, that they cannot, they can be supported from the state level. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's really intrinsically important to their health component. And I think just, uh, you know, these are obviously very difficult times for, for all of us um, doing this work and for, for all of our people living through this in a very real way. And yes, it's, um, you know, it can be, you can get frustrated with the fact that it takes a pandemic to address um, other issues like safe supply, um, and, and getting people inside safely and, and all of those things. But also, I think it's important that we do look at this as an opportunity. 
um, as a hopeful one and a positive one that, okay, we have this opportunity to actually move forward on things because of a pandemic. So let's not lose sight of that and stay the course on improving things for people, not just now, but moving forward. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tanya. Corey? No, I'm just um, I'm really appreciative of everybody, um, of all of your of all of your hard work. I'm, I'm especially appreciative of all of you who are on the other line, on the uh, on the front lines who um, are dealing with this and are trying to process the minute by minute policy changes that come from government and organizations and, and <laughs> trying to make sense of it all while while framing it within the rights and um, and, and liberties of the people that you work with. So. Thank you to everyone, and um, I hope we can continue this conversation. Because Duncan, if this wasn't if it wasn't eleven twenty eight, I would say we we should just like go right into safe supply conversations too, because <laughs> there's so many so many great areas that we could talk about. Um, and Elin, thank you for all of the great work that you do as well. Yeah, great pleasure. I'm a CC. I want to talk about safe supply. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, to me, this sounds like the start of a conversation. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've hit on a couple things here. We've hit on safe supply. Uh, we need to talk about that and how that's played out in getting housing for people in the midst of the crisis. We need to talk about housing in terms of how are these, how is your hostel running? How are the staff transitioning? How are we supporting people once they're inside? What are we doing to help our staff deal with the change in their roles? So there's some, I think there's some more conversations to be had with this amazing group. And I'm hoping that you'll all come back and, and have those with us. Good. Okay. So I've just put up a slide here. Um, if you want to take off your webcam, you can. Um, I've just put up a, just going to wrap things up here. <laughs> and I think there's a, a yeah. Thanks, Aileen. Aileen's already back at work now. <laughs> um, I've just put up a slide here. If you want to get in touch with PHS, um, here's how you can do that. They're here in Vancouver. Um, so if you have follow-up questions for them from today, but hopefully we'll have Duncan and Tanya back on the line. And then um, here's Corey's info as well, um, if you want to get in touch with him. So I just want to say thank you once again to everybody on the line. Thank you for showing up. Thank you for doing the hard stuff. Thank you for standing in that space between uh, directive and harm reduction and continuing to negotiate that, um, both for yourself, for your staff, and for your clients. And um, we hope that we'll see you again. But we're very proud of you here at HSABC for all the work that you're doing to keep people safe and to keep yourself safe. And if you want to find out more, um, this is our website. You can get in touch with us. You can call us. You can email us. There's also a, a whole section on our website that will have recorded webinars. We have a podcast feed now where everything is audio, so you can listen to it in your car. Um, there's all of the handouts that Corey talked about today and from previous webinars. So thank you for being here. Thank you for being who you are. And thank you to all of our panelists today. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. Stay calm. And uh, Stay strong. HSABC is a provincial, member-driven organization, and our mandate is to strengthen and unify services across BC that are addressing the needs of those experiencing homelessness. Right now, so many of our members, as well as their friends, families, colleagues, and clients, 
are facing unprecedented challenges, as well as a total change to our daily lives. And we're here to help support you on the front lines, however we can. You keep showing up, even in the most intense and difficult of circumstances, for the most vulnerable. Thank you for all the work you do and for continuing to do it every day. Our website is hsa-bc.ca and you can find COVID-19 specific resources for frontline and shelter workers, including handouts, posters, webinar video, news and health authority updates, and much more. You can also email us at info at hsa-bc.ca or find us on Twitter at underscore hsabc. Stay calm, stay safe, stay strong.